Welcome to our third Cows on the Planet podcast. This series of podcasts will be exploring the science of beef production, beef, and impacts of cattle on the environment. My name is Kim Stanford, and I am one of your hosts from the University of Lethbridge. I've been a beef researcher for the past 30 years, and before that on my family farm, but I probably should have taken more biochemistry classes in university than I did film studies, so I will enjoy learning from our guests as we go along. My frequent co-host is Dr. Tim McAllister, Principal Scientist with Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada, also in Lethbridge. Tim has studied a lot of different beef-related things over the years. And our other co-host is Dr. Kim Ominski of the University of Manitoba, who will be joining us when she can sneak it into her schedule. Kim is the Director for the National Centre for Livestock and the Environment and has a lot on her plate, including teaching and research. The topic of this podcast is cows and biodiversity. And Tim, I think biodiversity is an issue that is rising in importance, but maybe hasn't got lots of attention yet. What are your thoughts about this topic for this podcast? Yeah, Ken, well, I think it's a very timely topic to address at this point in time. We really are looking at sustainability metrics in livestock production. And I would say that biodiversity is one of the ones that have come to the table a little later on, partly because of the complexity in terms of measuring biodiversity and defining how it interacts with livestock production systems. I've actually got an active project going on now that's looking at the relationship between beef and biodiversity in Western Canada in conjunction with the Alberta Biodiversity Monitoring Institute. And it's also gained recognition at the international level. The Livestock Environmental Agricultural Partnership had a technical expert group on biodiversity of which I chaired with scientists contributing from all over the world in the field of biodiversity and looking at developing ways of measuring the interaction between biodiversity and livestock production. So I'm really looking forward to hearing what our guest today has to say about biodiversity in cattle. Okay, well, enough about you. <laughs> on, to our, on to our guest. So to give us all a better understanding of the issues of surrounding biodiversity in cattle, our guest is Tom Lynch-Staunton, who's the Regional Vice President of the Nature Conservancy of Canada. Welcome to Cows on the Planet, Tom. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. So, Tom, what led you to working with the Nature Conservancy of Canada, and what are the major things that you do with the Nature Conservancy? So I guess what led me to join the Nature Conservancy of Canada, so I grew up on a family cattle ranch down in southwest Alberta, and it's now become a fourth generation cattle ranch. And I grew up and after my undergrad degree, I went back to the ranch and worked on it with my family. You know, I've been very fortunate to grow up in that landscape. It is a, it's a landscape in the southwest foothills of Alberta. It's predominantly a rough fescue grassland. And I guess what really has inspired me or, or has really sparked my passion for conservation is directly working on the landscape as a cattle rancher and understanding how the health of that landscape directly affects not just our economic well-being as a ranching business, but also our own physical and mental well-being as people. And so there's a lot of pride in in looking out at your natural landscape. And our ranch was about 90% still intact natural grassland. And seeing that that landscape is healthy, the plants are healthy, and there's an abundance of wildlife that, that frequent the landscape in addition to, to raising healthy cattle, there's a lot of pride in that. And so that's really what 
solidified my passion for conservation. When I left the ranch, I worked in several areas, always still somewhat connected to the beef industry, maybe because of my passion for it. But, you know, I worked for the University of Alberta and then I worked for Alberta Beef Producers and the Canadian Cattlemen's Association. And through that time, we we started to realize that we have some shared values with organizations like Nature Conservancy of Canada, Ducks Unlimited, World Wildlife Fund, who are also trying to preserve some of these natural landscapes and the biodiversity that is on these landscapes. Very much the same values and ideas that I learned as a rancher, and that's shared with the majority of ranchers across the prairies. And so that led me to an opportunity to to apply and start working with the Nature Conservancy of Canada. To answer your question about what the Nature Conservancy of Canada does, so With respect to grasslands and biodiversity, we primarily work with private landowners in conservation of their lands. And that's done through either donations or acquiring lands that NCC owns outright, um, or the purchase or donation of a conservation easement where the rancher still owns the land and the majority interest in the land. And what we've done with a conservation easement is purchased rights from them that ensure that the landscape remains intact. So those rights can be things like subdivision, the right to cultivate, the right to change that landscape or convert the landscape. So we're essentially purchasing those rights. And that goes on title and is essentially the conservation easement becomes a legal requirement to keep that land intact. But what it also does is, while it restricts some of those conversion rights, it does allow for the continued sustainable ranching practices and to keep those cattle ranchers on the landscape and gives them the ability to keep ranching. Thank you. That's a, I'm, I may be in touch with you later with my personal ranch, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> For sure. Absolutely. Hopefully that, uh, that answered the question. To yeah, some no, that's, that, that, that's good information. Yeah. <laughs> So, Tom, when we talk about biodiversity, what do we really mean? Like, we hear a lot about biodiversity in the rainforest and biodiversity in the African savanna. What is the concept of biodiversity from the perspective of beef production? Well, you know, I was thinking about about the definition of biodiversity. And while I, I don't know the scientific definition of it, maybe I'll give you what my definition or, or my perception of what biodiversity means and why it's so important. So again, if I'm looking at a landscape, and specifically an intact natural landscape, and I see the diversity of plants and animals and insects and critters and microorganisms in the soils, plants, animals that are on those landscapes, and you've got a wide range of these organisms on that landscape, that becomes an interconnected mosaic and web of ecological function. And while there are differing levels of biodiversity on healthy landscapes, to me, it's that interconnectedness of all those species that create a healthy functioning ecosystem. So as best as I can explain it, that's, that's really the way I, I feel that biodiversity would be. And, and maybe, Tim, you're, you're the scientist. Does that fit? No, that that sounds like a pretty good uh, explanation to me. And, you know, I think how how biodiversity contributes to multiple ecosystem services that we derive from the landscape. So, Yeah, and maybe I'll add that 
I think what I'm learning about biodiversity from my own personal experience, but then as I'm surrounded by ecologists and, and biologists and those in conservation and in the Nature Conservancy of Canada, we're also learning about how the removal of some of those species within that ecosystem can really affect the overall healthy ecosystems function. And we talk about things like keystone species and the removal of those keystone species having a cascading effect on the health of other organisms within that landscape, both animals and plants. I think that's really where you solidify why biodiversity is important because all of those creatures and critters and biological material is all functioning together in that biological web that keeps it functioning the way it should. And it's evolved that way over you know, millennia. So would beef cattle be seen as a keystone species within grassland ecosystems, Tom? Well, I think, I think there's certainly a proxy for a keystone species. You know, our landscape used to be, and, and if we think of the northern Great Plains in Canada and the U.S., one of those keystone species was the bison and the millions of bison that used to roam. Likely, they're not the only keystone species, but they're a good example. And throughout the years and now into modern times, we're realizing that if we can use cattle or other livestock to mimic the grazing patterns of bison and elk and deer and other, other animals that were on this, on this landscape and, and using it, we can hopefully mimic the function that they provided and ensuring that that biodiversity remains using cattle as a proxy for the for that those large ungulates that used to be on the landscape or that are perhaps still on the landscape but not in quite as much abundance i'm wondering tom how do you measure biodiversity and select a valid baseline because if the baseline measurement is a paved over parking lot in a former paradise you get a different take than if the baseline was the paradise prior to paving. Well, I think I, uh, that's probably a question that is still being answered on how we measure biodiversity. When I look back at my ranching experience and I see a herd of elk that's hanging out on our ranch or deer or bears or others that are starting to frequent our place, I feel that we're probably managing it in such a way that that is attracting those animals. And so, you know, one way to measure biodiversity is start to count the plants and animals and birds that are frequenting that place. And that gives you a measure of, of health. I know, Tim, you know, of the wildlife habitat capacity index, that's one tool that we can try to get a sense of the biodiversity on a certain landscape. And that's, that's one of many tools that I think people are trying to explore. How do we really measure biodiversity and how does that biodiversity relate to the health of the ecosystem? The challenge with it is, is we're in an era where we're dealing with things like climate change and temperature changes and the natural ecosystem is constantly changing and evolving. So, <laughs> so it's sometimes hard to keep up on those measures. Yeah, it sounds difficult and it also sounds like it'd be difficult to know, like, how do you compare over time? Like, if all your measurements are, are taken now, how do you say, like, compare biodiversity to back to when the buffalo were roaming over? Like, where do you start your comparison? Seems like another issue. 
it's a good question. And maybe one of the ways is, yes, you compare it to what was it like in the past, but you can maybe compare landscapes to different adjacent landscapes. And then you can get a good measure of biodiversity. So, you know, that ranch land that might be right next to a farm field or right next to uh, urban development or, uh, or some other development. And you start to measure the species that are using those landscapes to get you a measure of really what, what is the biodiversity on, on those different landscapes. Yeah, I think we, we discussed that a lot in that LEAP uh, expert group that I was involved in. And we call that the reference state. So selecting the reference state is a really important part of any biodiversity assessment. And in North America, it's often pre-European influences is often used when the land was largely influenced by the natural populations of wildlife that evolved here and the indigenous people that made use of the landscape and the wildlife that were present. So I think that's a really important criteria in terms of when you're selecting that and doing those comparisons. But I think when it comes to agriculture, like when we say pre-European or European influence, that includes all influences that humanity's had on, on the landscape. And that's more than just agriculture, right? That's urbanization, paving of roads. It's everything that has impacted that landscape. So I think we need to keep that in mind too, that there's a lot of other anthropogenic practices that impact biodiversity beyond just agriculture as well. So getting back, Tom, to the grazing situation with cattle, does that require good pasture management? Like you mentioned that they could be a proxy for the previous keystone species in the bison, but does that take, like we didn't really manage the grazing of the bison, right? They just kind of moved across the landscape. But what about with cattle where they tend to be more confined? You know, we do have fences and things like that. How do we manage them in a manner to maintain biodiversity given those changes from the time of the bison? Well, it, you know, uh, Tim, it's a really good question. And it's, I think, one of the best answers is we're always evolving and improving and learning. And, and it's that point where we figure we can't learn anymore that probably we start to negatively affect the landscape. So certainly we know that human impacts or human influence is probably the, it, it, it's one of the most I guess, negative drivers to losing biodiversity, but it also can be a driver to enhancing biodiversity. And we know that the same with grazing cattle. If we graze too hard, if our stocking rates are not such that we're putting too many cattle on that landscape that it can handle, we're going to start overgrazing and we're going to start affecting the biodiversity of that landscape. And we know sometimes, unfortunately, through trial and error and through the years of practices that don't work and have had a significant negative impact on biodiversity in the natural landscape. But we've also learned how to graze and how to graze in such a way that that enhances the natural health of that landscape and enhances biodiversity. And the more we can continue to evolve and learn as, you know, climate's changing and, and we get different weather systems and, and new ideas, the better we'll be able to continue take care of the land and we'll continue to learn things that don't work very well and we'll continue to learn things that work really well in in managing that landscape on a smaller scale. But no doubt we have a lot of influence on whether that's a positive impact or a negative one. Looking at uh, like comparing pasture land to cropland, if a field is being used for let's just say growing canola and you're applying herbicides and you're controlling the weeds, 
is it possible to maintain any biodiversity on, on, on a field that's used for monoculture crop production? <laughs> well, it's a, it's a really good question. I think it's safe to say that if you've got a, an annual crop next to a native prairie grassland, that likely you're going to have much more biodiversity on the natural landscape that hasn't been touched. But I think even with farming practices, there is opportunity to create more biodiversity within those farming systems, even if it's a monoculture crop. Insects, birds, ungulates still will go into tame cropland. And if we continue to learn on how to do that better, I think we can increase the biodiversity. But certainly it's a matter of degree comparing a, an annual cropland to an intact native pasture. Mm -hmm. And I think it's safe to say that the biodiversity will be much more abundant on the natural landscape at this point. But not to say we can also continue to learn and, and think about those annual croplands and how we might be able to increase biodiversity and whether that increase in biodiversity in plants and animals increase production, make the soils more healthy, what sort of effect they will have. I think it's a very interesting concept and certainly a worthwhile goal. Tom, a few years ago, there was some concern. There was quite a bit in the, we heard in the news and that about the sage grouse as an endangered species and the impact that cattle grazing may have had on that. I'm just wondering if there's more information that's come out with regard to that relationship and, and the interactions that were occurring between cattle and the grouse. Mm -hmm, absolutely. So my understanding is, is, is that, again, overgrazing would have a negative impact for the sage grouse. Now, I think we've learned that what has even more of, of an effect on the sage grouse is conversion of that land to cultivation or other development uses. But we have learned that sustainable grazing practices enhances the landscape and creates an environment that's productive for sage grouse. And I believe that we're actually turning the corner on those practices and increasing sage grouse populations. And we have some, some really interesting projects that are happening in Southeast Alberta to restore and revitalize habitat for sage grouse and where cattle can continue to be compatible on that landscape. Sage grouse and many other species on that landscape do require a differing canopy of grazing where you know, minimal grazing is good for some species and heavier grazing is good for other species. And we're kind of learning how to graze cattle to allow for those different, I guess, grass level heights and different species within that landscape that accommodate different birds. So it is, again, a, an evolving science that we, we're constantly learning about how to do it better. I assume the sustainable grazing is also good for productivity of the cattle as well. Oh, absolutely. One thing that we've learned in terms of the economics of ranching is that our economics of ranching and the business of ranching is absolutely and very much tied to the health of the landscape. And while there might be some times where, yes, you get into a drought situation and you realize that you might have more cattle than, than the land can hold. And, and so you have to think about ways on how you're going to manage that, whether you sell cattle or you find other lands to rent. But certainly that all ties into what sustainable ranching looks like. And if you do have a situation and drought happens, weather events happen, life happens, where, where yes, you might 
you might have to overgraze one year or have a sacrificial pasture to save other pastures. But you can't do that for multiple years and expect that that land will recover enough for you to continue to have a viable business model. And many of those people that graze that way or expected too much out of their land and weren't watching rangeland health um, aren't in the business anymore. And so ranchers' economic and personal well-being uh, of their business of ranching is directly tied to the health of the land and water that they're stewarding and raising cattle upon. Okay, moving on to endangered plants. Are there endangered plants in Canada that need to be protected from grazing? Like, for example, if there was the Shushwap buttercup that was endangered and cattle found it extremely tasty, similar to deer and your tulips in the springtime, how would that be handled? That's a really good question. I don't know the answer to that one. I don't know which plants would be endangered from cattle grazing. So I'm not sure. Well, I maybe can maybe that. there are maybe there aren't any. Like I don't know. Don't know that. There might not be. I mean, cattle like any other livestock do learn what plants they like and what grasses they like, and 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 they will seek them out, and they can have that impact. So I expect there are probably some native plants that you have to be conscious of when you're grazing cattle or sheep or other livestock on the landscape. But I'm not too sure about whether there are endangered plants that we have to worry about with cattle. Tim, maybe maybe you know. <laughs> you, you mentioned how grazing can change the composition of the pasture and that, but, you know, depending upon the intensity of that grazing. But if you adjust that intensity, I, I don't think you're likely to eliminate specific plants from the landscape through grazing. Even really tasty ones? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think so, because it gets back to that that environment has evolved over millennia with, with those grazing animals being on the landscape. So, Well, I was going to say, you know, the land can take a lot. I mean, the grassland landscape evolved with bison and fire and, and other effects. And sometimes, you know, a herd of a million bison have quite an impact. But that impact is temporary as they move on and into other areas and that grassland recovers and and I think what's what's really important when we're talking about grazing and best management practices, that rest period between grazing intervals is probably as important as how you graze itself. And I think that's something that we've really learned over time and with really good uh, research from, you know, people like you, Tim, and, and others who are looking into this. So, Tom, we're hearing an awful lot about plant-based meat products now. And I'm just wondering, like, how would protein production in those types of systems impact biodiversity relative to the production of beef as a protein source? Well, it's something that I'm certainly conscious of and concerned about from a couple different reasons. So these plant-based products, from a biodiversity standpoint, if you're using monoculture crops that go into the plant-based meats, as we'll call them, it's certainly not going to, I would say be as biologically diverse the land that those products are grown upon. The other thing, and I, you know, I have to say that, you know, I think it's important to have for us as humans to have this choice because it's about a larger landscape, how we use our landscape the best possible way. And I do believe it's a combination of farming plants as well as, as livestock. And in areas where 
livestock might be the most appropriate land use or in other areas, uh, growing crops might be the most appropriate land use. So that's a challenge. One of the things that worries me from Nature Conservancy of Canada is we are still losing natural landscapes primarily to farming in Western Canada or across Canada. And I hope that the more demand there is for plant-based products, like plant meat-based products, I hope it doesn't encourage more conversion of, of grasslands into, into farming. And perhaps the way to solve that problem is try to use existing farmlands more efficiently or in, in different ways. So that's really where the concern comes is it's more at a landscape level and the sacrifices that we would have to make in conversion if we're really going to go down the plant-based meat route. Like I said, I believe there's a balance. I believe there's opportunities for both, but we should be just very conscious of really those environmental impacts for whether it's raising cattle or for raising a crop to grow a plant-based meat product. The other thing we hear a lot about in the press, Tom, is cattle. It's often related back to deforestation in the Amazon and the impact of cattle grazing leading to the destruction of the rainforest. And I'm just wondering, is it that simple in, in terms of the pressures that are leading to the deforestation in the Amazon? And does that have any relevance to conditions in Canada? Well, absolutely. And I do think that there are places places in the world where it is appropriate to raise cattle and crops and probably places we really have to think about changing that landscape to growing food, whether it's for cattle or for crop. And the loss of Amazon, I would say, is quite concerning. And are there better ways? Are there other lands that are less impactful to raise either livestock or crops from rather than convert rainforest and those types of very rich, important ecosystems that affect the health of our planet. And so when we look in Canada, it's an interesting discussion because we do have areas that aren't really suitable for crop farming. On our ranch, like I said, we're in foothills. It's quite rolly. There's not the topography for farming, but we're also dealt with high winds that happen in the winter where a lot of soil blew away and so we realized that really the best appropriate use of those grasslands on our ranch were to raise livestock so i think we really have to think on that landscape and sometimes it's going to be a global level of where we raise food and which types of food we raise on those landscapes i think that's a discussion that we need to take very seriously because it's very hard to reestablish something like a rainforest or a grasslands once you've decided to convert it to another use. I could talk about in Canada, we are faced with an interesting scenario where because we have gotten so good at fire suppression, many of our forests are actually encroaching on places like grasslands. And so while, yes, you could clear pastures for more grazing, if we looked at historical photos, many of these areas were actually grasslands before. So that's another complicated discussion about, well, what was the natural landscape in the past? And is it something that we should strive to get back to? And if that's the case, many places in Canada, we have a problem with forest encroachment. So these are complex discussions. And the other piece when we're talking about sustainability, if you bring in 
economics and feeding a population and society and what society needs for our own health and well-being, it creates quite a complex discussion. So it's sometimes not that easy. And sometimes it's as simple as we need food on the table. And unfortunately, we have to make some of those sacrifices. Well, thank you, Tom, for sharing some insights on how cattle interact with plants and other animals. For more information, what's the best way to contact you? Well, the best way to contact me is probably through my email at the Nature Conservancy of Canada. It's tom.lynch-staunton, so my whole name, at natureconservancy.ca. It's probably one of the longest emails that you'll find out there. Well, it'll challenge people's typing skills. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And we've got lots of, you know, whether you're in Alberta, so I'm in the Alberta region, we do have offices across Canada. If you're in a different region of the country, we've got contact information on our website as well at natureconservancy.ca. That's where you'll find a lot of information as well. Sounds super. Thank you, Tom, for being on our podcast. Well, thank you for having me. So, Tim, we've heard about what biodiversity is and how pastures for cattle can support biodiversity of both plants and animals. And what are your takeaway points from what Tom had to say? So I think one thing we can conclude is that measuring biodiversity is a complex process, and I don't think it's getting any easier. Tom had mentioned about climate change and the extremes we're seeing in both droughts and floods, and all of those things can impact biodiversity. And it's much more difficult to measure biodiversity in a rapidly changing environment, which we seem to be experiencing here as a result of climate change. I think that he clearly illustrated and discussed how cattle can play an important role in grassland ecosystems in terms of promoting biodiversity, but that has to be done with, you know, respect for grazing management and stocking density and assessing, uh, which I, I believe many producers do. They look at the health of their grassland ecosystems and try to manage the animals in a manner that promotes that. And I think it's also important to recognize that, you know, Tom was with the Nature Conservancy of Canada, but he also listed a number of other conservation organizations that are working really closely with producers in grassland and grazing systems. And I think that probably points pretty clearly that they see that as the way forward in terms of preserving those ecosystems and maintaining the biodiversity that they contain. So I think it's really positive to see those organizations working together with the landowners in order to try to achieve those goals to promote biodiversity. Thanks to everyone for listening. If you have comments about the podcast or suggestions about future podcasts, please visit our Facebook page, Cows on the Planet, We can also be reached by Instagram at cows on the planet or Twitter at cows underscore planet. Our next podcast will be uh, how much do cattle contribute to climate change? We always hear about methane emissions from cattle and how that's contributing to our problems with global warming that we're experiencing that. And and we'll have Dr. Karen Boschman from Agriculture and Agri-Food Canada joining us for that podcast. So we're looking forward to it. We need also to thank our production team Carter Potts is our audio engineer and developer of our theme music. Aaron Saunders is our logo creator. Allison McNaughton and Uvi Abiscaria are working feverishly on posting podcasts on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Simplecast, and Amazon Podcasts. Now some words from our sponsors, which for biodiversity could be sunlight, which is not the dishwashing kind, 
and Summer Rain, not the song by that name, but also known as Precipitation, uh, please send now. Our actual sponsors for these podcasts are the Beef Cattle Research Council, Canada Beef, and the University of Lethbridge. Nothing we are talking about represents the views of these organizations. We're just looking for the honest opinions of other scientists, farmers, or experts in any of the areas we are discussing.